2, The Power of More from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation Thinking Today's episode is about the future of work and workforce. We are talking to David Arkless about trends in the labor market and the human capital management industry, HCM. Before we get our guest into the conversation, I would like to introduce the co-host of the podcast, Dieter Brockmeier, the innovation expert at the Diplomatic World Institute. Hello, Dieter. How are you today? Hi, Christian, and uh, I'm really happy to have uh, David here. We had only very recently the chance to talk about all these issues and including the human trafficking and stuff. That's really a big issue, and this really is very much interwoven with the future of work. So I'm really very keen to to continue our uh, recent conversation, David. Great. Now to our special guest, David Arkless. He is the co-founder of the World Economic Forum in Davos and has a widespread experience of helping countries and major corporations develop their labor markets and HCM strategies. Hello, David. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's a great uh, pleasure. And um, I'm particularly looking forward to um, uh, putting some of the myths that are going uh, around about the uh, world of work and the future of work uh, to death today, uh, because there is so much um, uh, BS being talked right now about future and, um, you know, robots are going to take over your jobs and automation is going to make sure that you don't have a job, etc. So I'm really looking forward to talking with you two guys. Let's define the picture. What does the global job market look like and what has COVID-19 changed? A great question to kick off with. COVID-19 has changed uh, quite a lot, but from an attitudinal point of view, uh, I'll get to that again later. But to start with, uh, what's the global kind of um, um, employment situation looking like right now? Um, And whenever I used to do interviews all the time, when I was a global president at Manpower Group for 25 years, um, it's mixed. And of course, it's mixed. Because the job market, the global uh, employment situation is highly localized. And um, you cannot say we have a regional view uh, or we have a uh, country view. Um, it, it is so dependent on local uh, factors and issues. And as um, um, you know, Dieter and I talked about the other day, uh, really straightforward, um, the big thing that's driving uh, employment on a global basis, which uh, right now looks fairly positive because uh, lots of employers are looking to fill jobs, the thing that's going to drive um, global employment for the next 50 years is one simple issue. It's called demographics. It's not economy. It's demographics that is going to drive the world of work for the next 50 years. What does that mean? The olders are leaving the the workforce or the market for workforce? A really good question. I'll just give you one um, statistic that uh, if you take the EU as it currently stands within the next uh, 25 years, because of demographics, fertility rates, and the lack of positive immigration of workers, we'll lose around about 35 million workers. Now, you try taking a region or a bunch of countries and growing the economy, um, and we'll get to which parts of the economy need workers a bit later, um, when you're losing 30 million workers. It's really hard. And the answer to 
most people's next question is, surely automation, robotics, AI, machine learning will take over um, all of those jobs. Uh, the answer is it, it, they won't. So uh, demographics is going to drive everything. And that's the primary issue we need to look at. And what do you think about the job cuts due to automation? The answer to um, a lot of this thing about isn't automation or information technology process taking over jobs? Um, uh, and will robots take over my job? Uh, or will um, automated information technology processes take over my job? Um, it might. Yeah. Does that mean I'll lose a job? I won't have a job in future? The answer is uh, no, you will not lose a job. What we're talking about here is to develop a really professional and mature perspective on which jobs might be automated, which jobs might be roboticized in processing, process manufacturing, uh, automated uh, truck um, uh, delivery with, um, you know, GPS or, you know, uh, Google flying in your package to your door on a drone. Yeah, yeah we're going to get new jobs out there and we're going to lose some jobs. The thing that I tell big corporations and governments, indeed, that I uh, advise right now is there is still a huge deficit in the workforce. What we've got to work out is where the jobs are going to be and then skill relevant parts of the workforce for the jobs that are either here now and we can't find workers or the jobs that are coming. Yes, certain jobs will disappear. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, they will be process automated, but that will create other jobs. And the, the one I like uh, the best, Christian, is the industry that you um, are in, have been in, that I was in uh, for many, many years, which is um, everybody's saying, uh, if you're a programmer, you better look for a new profession. Uh, well, in one sense, yeah. So if you've got certain programming skills, It can be that accumulated machine learning and AI can automate the programming for what you do. So change your skill set, become a programming architect and project manager because machines can't do that. If you want a machine to do something, guess what? Today, you've got to tell it what to do. The, the day that um, you know, we get eventually to, hello, this is uh, David. What I'm trying to do uh, here, machine, is to develop a program that will fully um, um, ratify all certification for job applicants worldwide. Uh, go, go ahead and program it. We can't. Th th there are no machines that can do that today. We've got to give machines an architecture. So what I'm saying is we're going through a transitionary period from uh, humans need to do everything in every most every profession through How do we use fantastic new technology to take us through a transition where we are the architects and then in future, okay, maybe they'll take over more and more. But trust me, whatever machines take over, there will always be a demand for the human in input because um, what's the whole point of programming something to provide a service or technology for an individual or an organization that will make them better, more efficient, have a better life, whatever. The whole point is it's about humanity. It's about us. So you're never going to not have the need for an Uber um, organizer of any specific domain on the planet. That, that's where this thing starts.
And how much is the, the workforce market influenced by refugees and human trafficking? And how are we dealing with There are two things here with uh, human trafficking and um, uh, refugees and um, the uh, abused migrant workers worldwide. And I put them all together and say it's a huge problem, but it's an amazing opportunity for the future of work. So I've been working for, I don't know, 25, 30 years to try to stop human trafficking in, in, in uh, many places around the world, the US, the UK, Modern Day Slavery Act, et cetera, et cetera, uh, with the UN, with different organizations. Uh, equally, I've worked with the High Commission for Refugees, trying to give every refugee some kind of skill so that they can create a job or create a, um, a, a an economy of some kind. And I've tried with many global governments to stop um, the abuse of migrant workers. So on the one hand, that work still needs to carry on. On the other hand, if I go back to what I was saying about the EU in terms of falling numbers of potential workers, if um, I go to the US um, and go back to projects that I've run with the US government, like, um, um, hello, David, we need around about mm, 16 million nurses so that we can actually get the job done in hospitals in the United States uh, this particular year. And I'm going back a few years. And uh, they say, um, can we find them in any other country? And I'm going, yep, you've got one next door to you. You've got one just across the Pacific, you know, with Mexico and with the Philippines. Um, and They say, oh, fine, let's put a program together to bring in uh, these qualified nurses. And then you start hitting problems uh, with barriers to immigration in the U.S. with um, the, the biggest problem that people don't realize globally in moving workers is something called certification and verification of certification. In other words, I find a hospital in Maryland in the U.S., and they say to me, which they uh, did, um, uh, can you find us a 1,000 nurses? I say, yes. Where are they from? They're from the Philippines. Uh, are they fully qualified? Yes, they are fully qualified. Oh, let's look at the qualifications and look at the, um, uh, the comparison between American qualification, certification, and the Philippines. And there's a huge gap because there is no profession on this planet that as yet has a global standard of certification for any particular skill. So, of course, the whole thing starts to break down. I had the um, same problem with the Alberta Sands project uh, up in the, uh, the northwest where um, Alberta asked me, David, can you find um, around about a 1,000 highly qualified um, extraction engineers for OGC uh, specialized in permafrost e extraction. I said, yeah, sure I can. And um, I, I went immediately to where I knew there was um, um, a, a, a huge surplus of those kinds of engineers. It was, the, it was Siberia. And these were Russians that were out of jobs um, because some of the um, um, fields, the permafrost fields in Siberia had started to shut down. And I just went, hey, I can take a thousand of these people move them to Alberta, not a problem, except the problem was certification, um, um, qualification matching, and the inane barriers to actually bring qualified people into the United States. Like we hired a jumbo jet to fly people from Siberia 
after they were uh, agreed for qualification to um, the northwest of the United States. And um, what happened was they landed, they had all of the paperwork, and at immigration, the immigration authorities said, uh, you need to fill in this paper in English right now. Most of them didn't know English very well, and they couldn't fill it in. So they took three quarters of that jumbo jet plane full of engineers that they needed 20 weeks ago and sent them back to Siberia on the, the plane I charted. Look, that's just a tiny example of the barriers that are in the way of moving the workforce from one place to another on this planet. Do we have enough people that want jobs? Do we have refugees, traffic people that need, first of all, saving, then training, and then putting into jobs? Yes, we do. But you just try getting um, uh, a refugee a job in a third person country. There are, what, 35 million, uh, almost 40 million permanently displaced refugees today. That means they can't go back to where they came from, or I'll say, well, they don't want to, but they'll probably be shot or uh, whatever. Um, we can't get permission to move them to a, a third-party country. And for sure, we can't get permission to give them jobs when they get there. So what we've got, I just look at the workforce, not just in humanitarian um, uh, points, but in logistic and supply chain points. We do have enough workers on this planet. We just have an inability to move them to the right place at the right time because of institutional barriers and poor forecasting of exactly what the workforce needs in any place at one particular time. The freedom of movement is something fantastic on the paper. Uh, we were discussing it in the terms of the European Union. It unfortunately never really worked. So how can you bring somebody to the place where his work is needed and the other way around? The solution to this will be driven by something called desperation. And let me give you a couple of um, um, examples right now. One example is... All of the UK supermarket chains, who are some of the biggest logistics users in the United Kingdom, they're all saying that there will be shortages of food and stocks for Christmas. And then you look into it and you go, why? I mean, surely, you know, you, you people are the masters of logistics. Indeed, they are. However, since the United Kingdom left the EU... There has been a severe shortage of heavy goods vehicle drivers in the UK. Today, there's a deficit and one big chain, I, I can't mention its name because I'm trying to fix this for them, said, can you um, give us a, uh, a thousand drivers within a month? And I said, uh, well, yeah, I could, but the UK is going to stop them uh, coming in and driving in the UK under current rules. So a situation like that uh, goes back to the basic supply and demand balance. There's a huge demand for drivers in the UK. Uh, legislative barriers um, stop drivers coming in to fulfill the need. It will change. Trust me, that will change before Christmas. And today... I saw um, that the UK, the Home Office, uh, etc., and the Cabinet Office is considering a special dispensation so that you can hire qualified drivers from 
anywhere in Europe into the UK, which is now not the case. Another one, second one, um, Poland. It was always the um, work fruit basket of Europe. If you wanted a worker in any vocational skill, manual skill, whatever, you could find a Polish worker that would come um, into the UK, into other parts of the EU. The market has now changed so much because of personal, um, you know, lots of lots of Polish workers went, for instance, to the UK. Then when they got kicked out, more or less, they went back and their average earnings was uh, expectation was still 10 times higher than the national average wage. And they would refuse to take some seasonal jobs, for instance. Um, one of my favorites is we just fulfilled in one of my um, uh, companies where I'm chairman, uh, which moves people internationally for jobs, um, 20 Polish um, uh, fruit picking organizations came and said, we can't get the harvest in because no Poles will take these jobs. Can you find 5,000 um, blackberry pickers for f six months? And I said, yeah, sure we can. <laughs> That's where the problems start. We could find them immediately because the seasons for uh, fruit picking are different, believe it or not, in Poland and Romania. We've got an organization in Joblio where in Romania uh, we could find the workers and then we have to go through a huge uh, bureaucratic process to get people even from Romania to Poland, which we eventually did in the end, which means I'm probably going to lose a load of money on the deal because, as you know, uh, fruit picking jobs are fairly low margin jobs for recruiters, whatever. And I'm just saying that in the end, desperation will drive economies, which means I can't get workers I can't expand my company. I can't get the job done for my customer. I can't get the job done for my supplier. Therefore, I am going to encourage and indeed in the end, force my government and other institutions to allow me to make responsible decisions with regard to the transfer of workers, the movement of workers in a place like Europe. And by the way, it's exactly the same in many parts of Asia. In some countries, it's the same between regions. In, in China, for instance, where we've got huge organizations, try moving a worker between the one of the 37 regions in, in, in China. But what's happening there is that the government and the regulators are realizing that their skill balance is um, badly distributed, and they're starting to give permission for many millions of workers to move from one place to another. Don't get me into the politics of, you know, it's different dealing with um, a, a, um, um, a, a central um, government like China. I almost said dictatorship. I, I wouldn't mean that. Uh, or a distributed democracy like the EU. But everyone is facing the same problem right now. Another uh, problem, of course, is a, is a, re a reverse problem that you have a lot of refugees that are uh, leaving their countries for purely for economic reasons and flooding markets where they are not necessarily needed. And uh, I think you also have an approach on, on that, how to deal with that. Well, first of all, refugees can't flood markets because refugees have, first of all, got to become asylum seekers in a specific place, then apply to be a formal refugee, and then uh, UNHCR and other organizations try to find them. 
a place to go. Um, I, I think we need, and your, your question though is very accurate, we need to separate what I call formal refugees and informal refugees. Many people would see that all of the people from North Africa that are flooding into different parts of Southern Europe uh, are refugees. They're actually not. They are work uh, and economic refugees, which is very different to being um, you know, kicked out of Syria or Jordan or Iraq or Iran, whatever. So dealing with that question of um, informal refugees, which um, is, as you quite correctly say, one of the biggest problems on this planet. Uh, why do people move from one place to another? The answer is economic opportunity or safety. Okay, just basically two things. Um, and we're dealing here with the economic opportunity. Do you know how many jobs there were net uh, last month in Tunisia available on the job market? Well, I actually do because we do stats on all of this stuff. There was uh, uh, approximately, and if you take all of the jobs in Tunisia as 100%, the market actually contracted for available jobs by 26% in a month. So what are, what are people going to do? They're going to go, uh, I have no economic future here. I'm going to get on a boat, go to Lampedusa, see if I can get through Italy and get into the EU, uh, get asylum seeker status, hopefully, um, or just get a, a job. And that's one of the problems. Um, uh, uh, people that move for economic reasons often get trafficked. And uh, Dita, you and I have talked about this. So they pay somebody uh, 10, 15,000 US dollars to be moved from one place to another. And then there's a promise of a job at the end of this. And usually they're put into illegal, unsafe work, um, etc. So um, you said I have an answer for this. I, I have one answer, and it's really not rocket science. And um, uh, the not rocket science is a bit like this. And what it says is if you don't want people to move from the places they love, their homes, their cultures, uh, their way of life, find them a job, create economies, develop jobs for the people that are there. And as you know, we've um, got a foundation that does that throughout uh, uh, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, the Levant. And basically, we just focus on uh, finding young, um, mostly um, Arabic, Islamic young people who potentially could be mar marginalized in their society jobs. And we do it by, first of all, working out where the jobs are, what they are, what the job growth should be, what kinds of skills should there be. And then we train them for those jobs free of charge. And we work with local employers to put them into jobs. So, you know, one of the, one of the answers is uh, helping to create local work economies. And um, countries are particularly poor at doing that. A, they can't forecast the jobs correctly. B, they don't understand where their economies are growing. C, they have no programs to encourage young people, especially who are the biggest kind of slice of unemployed in the Middle East, for instance. They have no idea how to uh, identify them, incentivize them, train them, and then put them into jobs. This is not, this is, as I said, this is not atomic science. This is basic common sense. And we just do not practice it in many parts of the world. 
So that sounds for me that we have a lot of uh, opportunities with refugees coming to our economies, but we do have the regulatory challenges that we are not prepared for. I agree. So this has got to be fought on uh, two fronts, which I've been fighting for this for more than 35 years. One is to persuade governments, international organizations to um, regularize uh, the um, process and the legislation by which people can move from one country to another, or indeed one region to another. The second bit is ensuring that we have global programs in regions and countries that actually work out how the economy of the country is going to develop um, and what we do with um, displaced people. Can we retrain those displaced people for jobs in that country? If not, which countries will accept them? And then what jobs do we need to prepare them for in those countries? So you know, it's, it's, it's a really, as I keep saying, very simple supply and demand solution to displaced human beings, uh, displaced workers, and job uh, deficits in many countries in the world, which, as you guys have pointed out, will get worse because what's going to happen is a redistribution of jobs. It, there's going to be more jobs than we can fill. But what we've done is we've only trained individuals for the jobs that are there today and that were there 50 years ago. We need to start forecasting and training individuals for the jobs of the future, which it, it might be that if you're a process uh, worker, um, you know, banging um, kind of things and supervising a line where you put baked beans into a can, your job's not going to be there. But the skills that you learn there about monitoring, um, supervision, evaluation, uh, risk assessment, those skills can be used in a thousand jobs that we will need in the future. So it's all a question of understanding what we need and making sure we've got the people that can fill those jobs. But uh, but this brings us uh, also to the issue of trafficking, because uh, this also will increase because uh, there will be a lot of pressure. And if you look, if we look at the situation on the globally, it becomes more and more instable, and so the the pressure will increase. Uh, so uh, what can we do against this trafficking issue? As long as the demand is there, that there will be people trying to make money out of it. Uh, you're right. I mean, human trafficking is the second most profitable um, um, industry, if you want to call it that, which is demeaning um, of criminal uh, organizations in the world. Um, you know, it comes straight after drugs. And um, th th there are multi-billions involved in human trafficking. And believe me, unless you've ever really looked into it like I have, you have no idea how sophisticated the industry is. All the uh, the normal press report is um, these uh, uh, cockle pickers were trafficked to Liverpool and they died when the tide came in and you know they're all from Asia and uh, wherever else. What they don't talk about too much is there's a huge industry behind that. Um, last year alone, for instance, just into the city of London, more than 25,000 women were trafficked into the sex industry, okay, with no legal permission to work 
And then guess what? The, the minute they go into the illegal sectors, they disappear off the radar. So um, what's what's my answer to this? Um, uh, make me the global dictator of the world and I'll stop it. No, that's just, I'm just having a, a, a joke. Um, what we need to do is to carry on the work that many great organizations, uh, both not-for-profit and international organizations, uh, and some national organizations have started, which is the first thing you need if you want a systematic change is you need a change at legislative level, law. The level of law must change in many places. We don't go after human traffickers. We do not have a systematic and leverageable legal uh, framework to stop human trafficking on a European basis, an Asian basis, or an America's basis. I've tried um, for many years uh, to help start the right kind of um, legislation and enforcement that will help put these people, um, I don't know why I call them people, uh, these criminals out of an industry sector for them, criminal industry sector, which is human trafficking. It starts absolutely with having the right um, legislative framework in place. Like, for instance, we started a few of us the Modern Day Slavery Act in, in the United Kingdom. Did it go far enough? Not really. Did it start to put um, 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 governance over corporations that had to check their supply chains all around the world for uh, using child labor, traffic labor? Yes, it did. Did the penalties go far enough? No, we're still working on it. So that was one good example of how to start a systematic change at an, a national level. We also, a number of years back, started the um, Calif something called the California Act, which essentially did the same uh, for companies um, uh, and demanding that they check their supply chains for trafficked people, uh, their whole organizations, and for child labor. That has gone pretty well. We're starting to move that to more states in the United States. Um, I'm currently attempting to negotiate with the United Nations um, and some friends, and I, I can't talk too much about it yet because uh, this uh, um, commission hasn't gone through as yet the uh, General Assembly for approval. But what we're trying to do in the UN for the very first time is to put together a global, um, um, if you like, uh, legislative uh, framework to stop human trafficking that will be uh, mandatory for all uh, General Assembly country members and Security Council members. You might say, oh, that's just words. That would be huge. One thing that the UN have never been able to agree on is trafficking because they've always been focusing on uh, uh, weapons and security and this, that. Uh, Antonio Guterres, the current Secretary General, is deeply seated in trying to change the human construct of what the UN does. He used to be the um, uh, Director General of UN High Commission for Refugees, which, of course, how I got to know him. So he's deeply um, um, concerned about developing a global framework through the whole of the UN to try to then encourage countries to do things like the legislation we did in California and the United Kingdom 
and we're trying to do right now with China, which is a lot of fun. Uh, that 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 was uh, being a bit sardonic, but um, it's it's not as easy in in China. So um, yeah, um, we can do things. We're trying to do things, um, but it, it's 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 a hard effort. And once you're involved with this, it never lets you go. It's like a, a dog has bitten your arm and will not let go till you give him the bone. So it grabs you. And there's a whole community of us that are just intent on stopping human trafficking, making sure refugees actually can find a job, and balancing the world of work. It's simple as that. Yeah, um, I only can agree that we are, the challenges ahead are enormous. And um, I think governments still haven't understood enough uh, uh, what direction to take. And uh, I hope that they really will understand fast enough and uh, that the, the action can be taken and we will need it. Uh, it needs to be done because uh, other than that, uh, the problems we are facing in the near, near future will become much larger than they could be. Uh, Dita, I, I completely agree. I go back to my basic principle of thinking about the framework of this, which is the um, uh, the politics of desperation. In the end, um, politicians that are looking for votes, that are looking to improve their economy, that are looking to actually provide the workers that countries need in the future, will have to have a much more holistic view of, okay, um, migrant workers, how do we use the permanently displaced people um, in the world, the refugees, and how do we, in the end, uh, stop criminal gangs um, absolutely forcing people because of economic desperation into uh, forced labor. Um, you know, all, all of that will come to the surface, if you like, through what I call uh, political and economic desperation. Governments will do it in the end because they will be so desperate that they need to do it. What we're trying to do, or many of us are trying to do, is just to roll that process forward as fast as possible. But trust me, it's not easy. I came from the corporate side, as you know, uh, for many years, you know, kind of running corporate American uh, companies. And um, the day that you as a global president go to your board and your shareholders in New York and say, hey, I'm going to spend um, uh, 35, 40 million next year on helping refugees and uh, stopping human trafficking. And Honestly, the jaw drop the first time I said that at a shareholder meeting was, are you insane? Do you know how much of our kind of bottom line that wipes out as a percentage and what our investors will think? So I had to think smart back then. So what I did was I went, yep, uh, you're, you're right. I'll come back to you. So I didn't go back with a cash call to the shareholders and the board. I went back to them and said, Here's, out of doing the right thing, you can make much more money than we make now. Just by investing this 20 to 30 million, I can show you how we're going to make a fortune out of this. So um, essentially, you put together a balanced return on investment calculation, which says, we invest this in this, we persuade our employees, it's a great thing, we get the employees involved, Employee engagement goes up exponentially, and in a company like mine that had 
many, many millions of employees every year. If you could reduce attrition, as the Americans call it, or labor turnover by 1%, I could save the company in terms of total cost of replacement approximately 1 billion US dollars. Kaching, it's not hard. You need to do the right thing, get your employees involved, show to the shareholder that it's a great economic calculation, and then uh, then, then comes the hard bit, uh, deploying it and putting it into practice. But, you know, there, there, there are good economic calculations there. I'm really thankful, David, that you were coming up with the uh, holistic uh, approach. And, and you were talking about that as things need to be seen holistically. Uh, that's what I'm promoting all the time. We need to see things holistically and uh, things, everything is connected. And that's something that we haven't done in the past enough and we need to do much more and thank you david for bringing that up yeah thank you Dieter, for these closing remarks that was david arkles today in our episode about the future of work and workforce thank you for the conversation thank you david pleasure to the power of more from brockmeyer and salo innovation thinking